0: think there's a much smaller number of multi-billion dollar opportunities in deep tech kind of writ large. And I think critically, where those opportunities are is constantly evolving over time.
1: I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. Shall I store this on the Stark Industries Central
2: Database? I actually don't know who to trust right now. Till further notice, why don't we just keep everything on my private server?
1: Working on a secret project. The offices of Playground Global, a venture capital firm in Palo Alto, remind me a bit of Tony Stark's basement workshop. In one section, they're working on bipedal robots. In another, 3D printing. And in the middle of it all,
0: a children's slide that takes you from the balcony... To the ground floor, you know, building really technically challenging large companies are a combination of you know a really joyful practice of building new things. You know, you, we walked around; you saw our shop. It's really, it's really kind of exciting to, yeah, not, to bring kind of things into the robots, world. It is a playground. Yeah. yeah. Um, at the same time, it, it's it's a lot of work. Playground Globals Jory Bell. That's J O R Y, and the last name is Bell. B E L L. Does Jory have any significance to it? So my understanding is that. My mother named me after Victor Jory, who was a 1930s-era leading silent film star. Uh, and she just liked the, the sound of that last name, and so used it. I subsequently actually uh, had talked to, there was a group on the internet of people named Jory, because it's a low-frequency name, and they all had very unusual sources for where their name came sure. from.
1: Jory is, to put it mildly, crazy smart. He belongs in an office full of robots. Not just a degree from MIT, but three degrees, architecture, literature, and earth and planetary studies. He convinced MIT he wanted in by constantly showing up to student
0: orientation when he was in the second grade. I decided I wanted to go to MIT when I was seven, and I started showing up to their, uh, you know, Preview nights they would have in, you know, this is in Rochester, New York, upstate New York, and, uh, you know, they were a little concerned that I was overly focused at a young age, but, uh, but my goal had been, because I'd read a lot of science fiction, there were characters, uh, you know, frequently, you know, characters who had gone to MIT and dropped out and then done some interesting, you know, science-y startup or business And uh, so my goal was to go to MIT and drop out. And so I like to say I really disappointed my parents because I ended up uh, graduating with three degrees instead of dropping out. So
1: So MIT was a bit concerned that you were a little bit too intense for MIT.
0: At at the age of seven, yes. Yeah, they, you know, later on they warmed up to it, but it's okay.
1: (laughs) Architecture, literature, earth atmosphere, and planetary studies, link those together for me.
0: (sighs) I knew going when I went to college, that I wanted to, you know, divide my energies between the sciences and the arts. And so that's uh, architecture and earth atmosphere and planetary sciences. The, The literature one, I felt, is a little bit of a guilty pleasure in that I've always been a voracious reader, especially of fiction. And so it seemed kind of like a cheat to just uh, be able to read a bunch of books and write about them and get a degree for that. So that was kind of thrown in there for free.
1: <laughs> you, you've hit on what we English majors hit hit on early. Yes. Um, you mentioned science fiction as a boy. Uh, what kind of science fiction?
0: Um, well, I think apropos the current moment, uh, Dune. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of the, I'm trying to think of the range of the most impactful ones. So, um Stanislaw Lem, Larry Niven, um, a lot of the Russians I ended up liking. Um, So, you know, know, I I think the both things that kind of imagine what the future could be like, so things that kind of allowed you to ideate about kind of where you could push things. And also I think it's it's always been an interesting lens through which you can look at the current culture and try to understand you know what's really happening with a little bit of uh, separation from it and, and again kind of with an eye towards how can you solve problems
3: the last several months of 2000 were particularly challenging for apple and our industry we decided to start 2001 with a bang
0: and I came out to Silicon Valley, worked at Apple for a number of years designing laptops. You know, it started out with smaller components that I'd own, like latches and mechanisms. And then, uh, then I owned, for a number of the laptops, the display, the whole display assembly on the laptops. And then the last thing I did there was kind of conceiving and architecting the titanium PowerBook at the time, which was kind of the first metal uh, design and also the first widescreen design, which, which had a, a whole longer story. That was, that was one, of the, one of the things that I really had the most fun doing was kind of creating widescreen displays for laptops.
3: It's made out of titanium, like the spy planes.
1: So uh, Ken Koscianda, who invented iPhone's keyboard, said, nerve-wracking doesn't even begin to cover it. Step in the room with Steve Jobs. Yeah, yeah, the the adrenaline starts flowing and you're nervous and you know,
3: I know, because I'd had the experience before of how intimidating Steve could
0: be when I showed him something and he didn't like it. So I guess my only comment there is that I didn't find Steve nerve-wracking or whatever that phrase was right there because invariably I felt like he was making the right choices when I would see a range, You know, typically we would have to prepare a range of possibilities of here are the screen sizes, here are the options for how thick it could be or whatever the, whatever the question was. And he would have a, a very clear idea about which one was his preference for sure. And, uh, and I think that it was usually in every case, I saw the right choice. So I, f- I found that really reassuring.
1: When you moved on and you had your own computer startup, uh, what sort of things did you take from him uh, or reject from him?
0: So the thing I always wanted to be careful of was, you know, Steve did have a pretty strong and sometimes kind of abrupt communication style. Um, and I think that's there's there's a risk that I've seen people take that as the the low-hanging fruit of what they can emulate. Um, and I think it's more the thoughtfulness about, are you making the right product, You know, putting the customer first in your mind, and not you know, trying to over-triangulate on you know, the reasons that don't have to do with what is going to give a good customer experience, in, the, in this consumer context especially. Also, the other thing that I think Steve did a great job wa- of Well, just hiring incredible people and letting, if you hire the right people, then everything, you know, as an entrepreneur, everything's a lot easier and you need to give them space to do their jobs. Mm -hmm. So.
1: You are now working on, uh, you know, really another stage of tech. I mean, a lot of this is deep tech. It's not consumer. A lot of your background is in consumer. And there's no question that the iPhone and all of those things are a technological miracle. Uh, but you're working on things like genetics and space travel. Why why go from a fellow who designed notebooks and, and had a computer company to something that
0: is much more in the weeds of science? Huh, I don't know if I would I would actually I don't know if I would call that in the weeds of science. I think the I think there are a few reasons why I think the action is in these deep tech areas right now, regardless of kind of my own. Background or preferences. Uh, some of that is that the, you know, the maturing of the computer market, which is now the phone market, um, and the the hyperscalers and the cloud, means that there is less room for really kind of transformative, foundational companies. Uh, you know, and and there's been some, I think, really compelling arguments that there's going to be, you know, that light, in the same way that. Uh, GM and Chrysler and Ford kind of locked in for nearly a century as kind of dominant in that industry, that these these hyperscalers are, you know, there may be a prolonged period where the the Apples, Facebooks, Microsoft, Googles of the world are are really dominant and there's less room for building these huge multi-generational companies. Um, I do think that on the flip side, areas like, the life sciences, next-generation computing in, you know, in, a, in a more kind of foundational sense in areas like quantum computing and optical computing and uh, aerospace and manufacturing are all now seeing their own kind of industrial revolution akin to what happened with Silicon and Moore's law kind of culminating in kind of the current age of the smartphone.
1: When we walk around Playground, you can see that a lot of it is oriented towards hardware. I mean, obviously, I mean, genetics in a way is hardware, but it's not hardware that you can put a lathe to. Um, is that your first preference, are companies that that are making a thing? I mean, you know, Airbnb is not here, right? I mean, it, wonderful company, but they don't make a thing. the The companies that I see in the Playground facility are making things.
0: So... It's definitely the case that the majority of our portfolio, not 100%, but the majority of our portfolio are kind of working on some something that is both atoms and bits. It's always going to have a component of software. And even kind of the most hardware-centric businesses, some of our most hardware-centric businesses are fundamentally software businesses. But if you're going to have a big impact on the world, kind of beyond kind of social media and apps, that's going to require making something that's going to impact people's health, getting something into space, sequencing your genome. So, so I think we, we do believe that having an impact on the real world frequently uh, you know, requires that you interact with it in ways that are you know, part of what we specialize in is that focus on vetting and investing in companies that are taking on that kind of real-world challenge.
1: Two coming up. My five, four, three, two, one. Among Jory's investments, Relativity Space making three D printed rockets.
0: For a long time, things like building rockets, building spacesuits, uh, you know, going to the moon were incredibly expensive. Undertakings that only a government could even conceive of, right, and then in the last you know decade or two, we've seen the rise of first these kind of billionaire funded new space companies, which I think you know in terms of you know uh, especially in the in the context of SpaceX and Blue Origin, the focus on reducing the cost and making the rockets reusable, right. Is is critical in terms of establishing both the ability to have uh, a lot, a, a larger number of launches, right, where you don't have to build every single rocket that you're then immediately throwing away. You can just keep reusing it, like you reuse an airplane or your car for, for new trips, um, and uh, and also just the being able to amortize that cost of a launch over you know some num- you know, of that production cost over a larger number of launches. And so I think what's really interesting now is that those those billionaire-funded companies, Blue Origin, SpaceX, Virgin Orbit, have now both established a new culture and a new generation of engineers who have grown up in new space and are now going out to kind of transplant that culture and create their own startups where they're kind of pushing that, you know, the ideas that were established in that kind of first generation of new space into a next generation of entrepreneurial effort that kind of tries to op- build upon or optimize uh, that. It
1: sounds like you were, you know, at, at least somewhat supportive of the... I think a lot of people tried to do thought pieces and look very deeply into the billionaire space race in a way that was just, hey, you know, if you had a rocket, I'd, I, you know, if I built a rocket, I'd ride it too, you know, if I had confidence in it. Um it, as somebody who actually is in uh, or at least an investor in rocketry, what did you think of the kind of the hoopla around the whole thing?
2: And touchdown. Welcome back. New Shepard's first human crew.
1: Control best day ever.
0: It's mostly marketing for new space from my perspective. Right. It gets... Uh, you know, new generations of entrepreneurs and new generations of children interested in science, in technology, in kind of looking to, to space and exploration. So I think that's all a positive. But the thing that, again, is really uh, transformative to me is how those companies are training this next generation of engineers and entrepreneurs. Uh, like, our, you know, our our space companies you know, can't really hire out of old space. Those companies are really atrophied in terms of their uh, ability to execute technically. And they're used to doing that with just billions and billions and billions of dollars of taxpayer timelines. support yeah. and long timelines and, and an engineering mindset that will get you somewhere with decades of support from the government. But, you know, now new space companies need to do it in, you know, single-digit years with private money, and that's a very, very different game.
1: Have you ever heard uh, Justin Trudeau, the uh, prime minister of Canada, explaining quantum computing?
0: I have not heard that explanation, okay. no.
1: I've run it a couple of times, and maybe I'll run it this time. Uh, it's a, a press conference in which he's gone and he's you know, toured around the quantum computing facility uh, and one of the reporters asks him, you know, what did you think? And is do you, do you think it's revolutionary? But then the reporter interjects, not that I, I understand that you don't understand quantum computing. And the the prime minister of Canada says, hold on, hold on. Uh, yes, I do.
3: Very simply, normal computers work uh, by... uh <laughs> on, don't... Don't interrupt me. When you walk out of here, you will know more – no, some of you will know far less about quantum computing, but most of you. Normal computers work uh, either there's power going through a wire or not. It's one or a zero. They're binary systems. Uh, What quantum states allow for is much more complex information to be encoded into a single bit. Regular computer bit is either a one or a zero, on or off. A quantum state can be much more complex than that because, as we know, uh, things can be both particle and wave at the same times, and the uncertainty around quantum uh, states uh, allows us to encode more information into a much uh, smaller computer. So uh, that's what's exciting about quantum computing, and that's what we're doing.
1: And he nails it. (laughs) Now, someone said, ask Jory about quantum computing and bring a second pencil. (laughs) I've got a pen, so I think I'm pretty good.
0: Our view on quantum computing is probably, well, is different than most other investors and, and a lot of kind of the prevailing view on quantum computing. In that, what people have seen to date from folks like Google and and some of the uh, other startups, IBM, uh, in quantum computing, have been people making tiny numbers of physical qubits, you know, 10 physical qubits, 50 physical qubits, when everyone acknowledges, you know, in, in, in the scientific community that to do, to address really interesting and kind of transformative problems, you need something like a million physical qubits, uh, which if you've seen, if you looked at the pictures of of the Google machine, which is kind of an exquisite artisanal construction, they're clearly not scaling that technology to a million qubits. So our focus was on finding a manufacturing technology that was scalable and then transferring that, making that technology quantum instead of taking the low-hanging fruit of quantum technology and trying to scale that. And so that kind of led... Pretty obviously, in retrospect, I guess at it's time I don't know whether I should be so so uh, so assertive on that to a company we invested in called Psi Quantum, which uh, came out of University of Bristol, and it's a number it's some professors who had focused on making silicon photonics into a quantum computer, so using the the same technologies that are in your iPhone where we've, as a civilization, just spent trillions of dollars and kind of the pinnacle of our tech development is focused on making semiconductor chips and silicon photonic chips. And they're going to take that infrastructure and make a million physical qubit quantum computer in this decade for a bounded amount of money. Uh, and no one else has, kind of a road, uh, has a path to anything like that.
1: I the the you know a million qubits is staggering because it what you're saying is we we went looked around and saw people working on, you know, uh, computers that had vacuum tubes. And we decided instead to become Intel, uh that we're gonna build a microprocessor at a time in which we haven't really figured out
0: vacuum. I mean vacuum tubes are probably I'm a, trying to make a some little bit of too optimistic. Yeah. It's probably more like the you know An steam powered yeah. uh, situation <laughs> a
1: babbage machine exactly. i don't have ever seen that yep. yeah no I mean, a babbage
0: machine was yeah. what came to mind so.
1: yeah uh, oh i can geek out with you i can yeah i can yeah
0: <laughs> so the uh so yeah i mean i, I think in I mean, one of the things that i find really challenging but also really interesting about what we do at playground is that the areas that we invest in like quantum computing like gene sequencing like you know launch satellite launch vehicles are areas where you can you not only have to have the right thesis about where you know, where the business opportunity is going to be, but you need to select a technology that is perfectly suited to that with a team that's going to be able to execute on that technology. And it's not something where you can just, you know, iterate with A-B testing on your app and see if you get there, This this the level of kind of Expertise, both in the conception of the architecture and the execution, just has to be kind of exquisite. And so, finding those are, are what we get to do. But at the end of the day, when we see them, it's it's not super ambiguous to us because the you know the, there is we've only come across that single quantum computing company that we think has an actual path to making a million physical qubits, which is what everyone acknowledges you need to solve interesting problems.
1: Where does the expertise for something like that come in that as a venture capitalist and I maybe it's not you but the the person from playground who walks into that company and says yes these guys these women are capable of creating a computer with a million qubits. So somebody who's going to be at least as smart as the as the
0: people in the company. Our approach is you know we have a team of technical experts on staff. We build out theses of where we think there are going to be particular opportunities. We try to deeply understand those technologies before we are engaging with the companies that we are looking at so that we have a prepared mind and a kind of a more set idea of what we are looking for than just you know, responding to whatever the flow of the zeitgeist is around us.
1: What are you bad at? What are some things you don't know in which, when the meeting turns to that subject, you have very little to say?
0: I am particularly averse to assessing market risk and new business models. And so, I mean, I'd say it's probably true as a firm that we are drawn to things that have very deep technical risk. You know, like, we, we we will say, like, we like to invest at the boundary of improbable and impossible, but uh, but we want to take kind of relatively shallow market risk. Um, and so, you know, if someone can build a million qubit quantum computer, we have no doubt that there are a myriad of applications for that. And, and actually, quantum has a number of really interesting engagements with companies already on that. So... So I think that that is, that is fundamentally it. That said, some of my partners are a lot kind of more clever and experienced on assessing new business models and market risk than I am. And that's an area where I'm always constantly trying to learn as well.
1: You have an interest in in space and space travel, uh, you know dating back to when you were reading uh, science fiction as a kid. Uh, you worked for a while at Woods Hole and made robots for underwater the The parallels between underwater and outer space are are pretty pretty obvious
0: yeah I mean they're both really harsh environments where once you send that thing down it it's going to have to survive and exist on its own i mean I, I do think we should be spending kind of more more or as much energy on understanding the ocean as we do space. And a lot of the, you know, personally, a lot of the focus of space technologies that I find interesting are are things that are not only about exploration and kind of expanding outside of the Earth, but looking back at the Earth and understanding, you know, understanding it as a system and working to mitigate things like climate change and, and such. So,
1: Did I read somewhere that your first three investments were unicorns?
0: That is true, yes. (laughs) What were they? So Velo 3D, which does industrial-scale metal printing, uh, they're going to be going public in about a month. Uh, They actually, for what it's worth, uh, they're kind of—one of their claims to fame is that the uh, Raptor engines on the the SpaceX Starship uh, cannot be built without their printers. So you'd have to redesign the engine if you wanted to uh, change manufacturing technologies— uh, the second one is Relativity Space, which we've talked about a little bit. Um, and then the the third one is a very stealthy, very late-stage gene sequencing company.
1: Excellent. I look forward to coming back and hearing more about that. What didn't work out for you?
0: So far, I haven't had any investment failures, uh, which actually is definitely an argument for we're not taking enough risks, and I'm sure. not taking enough risk, right, because you'd expect that to... Uh,
1: there's a great quote. I think it's Gordon Moore, and it's on the uh, outside of the uh, tech museum in San Jose in Silicon Valley. It says, "If you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough."
0: Yeah. So, so I think the, I mean, the area that's newest to kind of my portfolio is uh, investments in the life sciences and especially therapeutics. So those companies are all doing well, but they're much earlier. So that's where that's where I worry, just because it's so early.
1: I was going to ask you what keeps you up at night. What's the well, you know, things are going well, but what what's the thing in the back of your head that says, oh.
0: I think for Playground, as a deep tech investor, you know, while there are, you know, huge numbers of SaaS, B2B SaaS, unicorns every year, and, you know, if you're a top, uh, you know, general VC, you just need to kind of select the right ones. And it's kind of a little bit of a lottery, but, you know, if you're at the top, you can Get the pick of the pick of the crop, and, and that can be, there's enough of those to support the success of your portfolio. I think there's a much smaller number of multi-billion dollar opportunities in deep tech kind of writ large, and and I think critically, where those opportunities are is constantly evolving over time as the kind of needs of society and the fundamental kind of technology shifts that are happening in individual subsectors are developing, and so we have to, and I have to constantly be looking for new areas where we think there's opportunity to have these really big impacts and thus really big outcomes. And so you know, looking for new entrepreneurs in new technical areas, solving new kinds of problems, instead of just having like, oh, well, we'll just keep doing space and kind of turning the crank, maybe that will be a really exciting area for the next 20 years, maybe the next 10 years, and and we need to keep looking for kind of new areas. That's also what's really exciting and kind of rewarding about the job is I'm constantly getting to learn and, and, uh, you know, find adjacencies to what we already have, you know, developed some expertise and and be able to, you know, learn new areas that we're going to invest in. Jory Bell, general partner
1: at Playground Global. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes at at PressHereTV.com.